there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. to the podcast. Um, last moments of the subjective history of WNEP theater from my addled recollection concluded with the closings of both shows we'd created out of the gate. We were far from finished, though. Something to reflect upon is the economic environment of 1990s Chicago when it came to the performing arts. While there were tons of sweat equity houses involved in putting up a show and promoting it, Getting a venue is relatively easy. In the current landscape of Chicago's arts, the best equivalent is the storytelling scene. Countless open mics and semi-curated story shows have been popping up ever since the moth hit the scene almost a decade ago. Well, improv in the 90s was similar in that it was easy to produce with no real production value or costumes to consider and was low, low cost in that the performers rarely required compensation. <clears throat> Stage time was in such high demand from those who were looking to hone their chops that finding the paid improviser was like looking for Moby Dick. The simple truth was that everyone needed to get better because everyone was looking to audition for SNL. And you didn't audition for SNL unless you were good enough to splash in the big ponds of Second City or Improv Olympic and you got those gigs by really improving your comedic chops. All right. So that's the setup. We join our intrepid artistic wannabes in the back of yet another bar in Chicago in the summer of Shays. It was once known as Clyburn Station, and comedy sports had performed there for a while. There were two floors. We performed on a 20-foot by 10-foot stage with two stand-up blinders in place so we'd have a backstage. I purchased one par-can stage light to compensate for the track lighting that was already in place. The stage was on the far end of a long room with a full but underused bar on the second floor. The show was called, as per Joel Jeske's parting suggestion, a mean Watusi, and we had decided to incorporate the things we liked about our first two shows in an ongoing, constantly changing review of improvisation and new written sketches and performance pieces. We ended the show with the Casey and Sunshine Band medley every time. It just worked so well. Jason Meyer, Laurie McLean, and I had joined Chicago Comedy Sports Audition and got into it, and it was a group that performed regularly at the Congress Hotel in the Loop. And there we met a host of very talented and funny folks. We also learned a shit ton of improv games, which, of course, we brought with us to the Level 6 show. 
Jason Meyer directed Mean Watusi. It worked like this. We'd meet on Saturday afternoon and go through new pieces. Whoever wrote the pieces cast them. Sunday afternoon, we'd meet up at Shays, whip together five or six blackouts, which are short, scenic jokes, usually 30 seconds in length, very famous in the Second City model. Meyer then would put together the running order of scenes and games, and we'd set the stage up. Then Hoover and I would go drink. The upstairs bartender was cool, and she gave us discounts, so by the time the show started, pretty much Hoover and I were bombed. Once in a while, Alita and Lori would join us. Lori wasn't always able to do the show because she was also in other shows around town, including uh, The Life and Times of Harvey Milk, as I recall. But then we'd inebriated, we'd do the show. I mean, Watusi was, in many ways, like grad school for us. We all, we'd all spent time in the Second City Training Center and now really spent time honing the skills we'd learned. We wrote and rewrote sketches, we threw up political blackouts, we improvised scenes and games, we put up crappy posters and learned the ins and outs of grassroots guerrilla marketing. Now, I was a bit of a loose cannon when it came to the marketing. We'd blown up our posters to 18 inches by 24 inches, big ones, and I started going to bus stops, putting a ton of duct tape rolls on the back, and I'd wait. When a bus would come by, stop, pick up passengers, I'd jump behind it and slap the poster on the back of the bus, knowing that anyone driving behind it during the day would be reading our poster. One morning, I was taping up some of these big posters up around the neighborhood, and there was this huge construction site up on Fullerton, and the entire sidewalk had a 50-yard plywood barrier shielding the site with nary a poster on it. And the frequent side of these barriers is that they're usually covered with large posters advertising CDs, movies, whatever. I proceeded to put up 10 to 12 of my big pink and blue show posters, and as I'm putting up the finishing touches on the last one, a police car pulls up. Out of the car, a cat that fits every stereotype of the fat, donut-eating, swaggering Chicago cop lumbers over to me. Hey, can you read? Huh? Yeah? So why do you think you can put those up? What? I look around for a sign. There isn't one. Am I missing a sign or something? You can't put those up there. Take them down. Uh, okay, where's the sign that says I'm not allowed to? I said you're not allowed to. Take them down. And then the smartass in me creeps into the dialogue. If there's no sign, then why does, what does my reading ability have to do with it? You a college prick? What? You one of those fucking college assholes? No, I graduated from college like five years ago. Why? Take those ugly fucking posters down. I start removing the posters, but my mouth wouldn't let me off the hook that easily. You an art critic? What? You must be an art critic to be able to so quickly ascertain that these posters are ugly because I know you can't read what they say, you fat fuck. Things just escalated from there. I mean, once you call a Chicago cop a fat fuck, there's kind of no turning back. He and I start yelling at each other, a general insult festival punctuated with lovely profanity. It gets so loud it attracts the attention of some of the construction workers, and as I dump my 12 wadded up posters in a public trash can next to the site, one worker decides he's going to join in on the phone. Hey, you can't put those in our garbage can. Oh, fuck yourself. This is a public trash can. Officer. Cop is loving this. Take them out of the can. 
Fuck you. That's it, asshole. He comes over, cuffs me, and proceeds to drag me back to the squad car. In my vision of anti-establishment radicalism, I start screaming, Pig! Unlawful detainment, pig! Yeah, 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 I'm aware that if I had more melanin in my skin, I'd be dead at this point. It is Chicago, after all. Privilege to behave stupidly is just one aspect of privilege. So he throws me in the back, and I continue to freak out, screaming about freedom of speech and other hyperbolic horseshit. He lets me calm down and pulls me out of the car, uncuffs me, and tells me to go get the posters out of the can. Not a fucking chance. Arrest me if you got it, but I'm out of here otherwise. And I walk away. And he lets me. I get to a Kinko's, and the adrenaline kicks me in the gut. I start to shake, and my eyes water. I, I hide under a desk in the Kinko's for like 20 minutes. And then I head to Joe's and freak out. I wish I could say the incident curbed my more guerrilla marketing strategies, but that, my friends, would be a lie. Bob was still with us, dutifully turning the lights on and off. He also started writing. One particularly excellent piece was entitled No Uncertain Words and was more a short one-act play than a sketch. The piece started with a bit of misdirection. A lower-class couple are fighting, and the husband, played by Polly Devitt, is yelling about his undercooked steak. He keeps screaming at her, Christy Transier, every other word being fuck, until Paul stops, looks out into the audience, and asks if it's realistic for him to say fuck so many times. At this point, the playwright director, character, uh, Meyer, Jason Meyer, comes up on stage and the three of them have a dialogue about the use of the word fuck to indicate gritty realism in theater. And the purpose of the scene was to say fuck so many times that the word ceased to mean anything. And they said fuck a lot in this piece. The piece was a big hit. Bob was instantly made the, quote, director of scripted pieces, unquote. The cast of the show fluctuated as people got cast in other things. I remember Meyer, Elite, and I doing the show, just the three of us, for an audience of seven. We kind of skipped the KC medley that night. As the run continued and the work got crisper and the artistic risks became more exciting, the tension between Joe, Jeff, and I became more and more caustic. Arguments about money, I continued to foot the bill 90% of the time, and artistic choices became screaming tirades almost every weekend. Hoover simply checked out. He was there to have fun, not fight with Joe and I. So Joe and I started almost every rehearsal or pre-show with some sort of a squabble, and everybody got tired of it. Finally, I confronted Joe and Jeff with a proposal. They could sign a document that gave me total control of the group, and I would forgive the nearly $6,000 I was owed. It was an awful moment. I mean, I didn't even give them a night to think on it. They signed the company over me. Three weeks later, we closed the show due to exhaustion and a creeping bitterness with each other. It was March of 1994. Amin Watusi had been performed 39 times in 42 weeks. Everyone basically quit. It looked like level six had had its moment and Please was just done. Toss it out. You're scaring everybody, man. Uh, I'm not going to hurt anybody. I know you're not going to hurt anybody, but me. I know you're not. Gonna, I'm just going to go with me. Please, you're scaring everybody, though. You're scared. Uh, just tell them I'm all sorry. You can tell them later on today and tomorrow that I was sorry. and that I, I'm sorry that I did this to the police department. Listen, I think you should tell them yourself. Uh-huh. And I don't want to have to tell your kids that. Uh, your kids need you. I've already said goodbye to my kids. Listen, no, we're not going to say goodbye to your kids. Oh, you're going yeah. to see them again. 
You want to see him again. Meanwhile, our association with Chicago comedy sports was starting to bear fruit. Two cats that were in comedy sports with me that I truly dug were Bill Cott and Jay Suko. Bill was, simply put, one of the funniest fuckers I ever met. Suko was one of my kind in that he found humor in the darkest, most twisted shit. One night on a comedy sports remote road trip... Cott and Suko got to talking about doing a two-man improv show. And at the time, it's pretty common today, but at the time, nobody did two-man improv. In fact, the the last time before this period that there had been any kind of big splash with two-person improv of any kind were uh, Mike Nichols and Elaine May. So we laughed and we did bits for a while in my car. Then Suko looked at me and said, yeah, Don, we want you to direct it. Could it be the next WNEP thing, which was actually asking me to direct and produce, given that at the moment I was WNEP. Without thinking, I immediately said yes, and we started the process that became a show we called Motherless Stage Whores. I came up with a structure for the show. We'd get four suggestions, and then we'd do 10 to 12 minutes of free-form montage-based improv on the first suggestion. And then there was a blackout. Then we'd have a three to five minute silent mind piece underscored by a piece of instrumental music based on the second suggestion, blackout. Then another 10, 12 minutes of free form, blackout, a three to five minute silent mind piece with different music using the characters from the first silent piece. We'd do a blackout, then it'd be 10 to 12 minutes of free form montage based on the fourth suggestion, another blackout, and finally uh, a final three to five minute silent mind piece Uh, third piece of instrumental music kind of wrapping up the three-part silent scene. We rehearsed twice a week for five weeks. During one rehearsal, I taught them the pain game, which I'd read about being used by Mike Nichols and Elaine May during the early Compass Players days. It was a simple game. It's start a normal scene based in conflict. As the conflict escalates, the players slowly begin to criticize each other as themselves, trying to cut their partner as closely to their actual jugular as possible. At a certain point, when the honest insults became too painful, the players transformed slowly back to their characters and find resolution. I'll admit, it's a fucked up game, but it's absolutely amazing to watch. It's kind of like watching a slow motion car accident. Suko was abnormally good at it. Cot wasn't. We played it once, and Bill left telling me if we ever played that again, he'd quit. So we never played it again. It did, however, create a weird balance in the show. Cot was a much more accomplished performer than Suko, but now we knew that Suko was far crueler. I rented the upstairs main stage of the Body Politic Theater on Lincoln Avenue. In 1994, it was $250 a night as opposed to 1999, when WNEP rented the same space for $2,500 per week under the Victory Gardens landlordship. The three of us put up posters and spread the word. We opened on Friday, June 3rd. Now this might be, uh, you might remember that this is sort of a historic day. This was the day the O.J. Simpson Bronco Chase had been playing itself out all afternoon. So of course, one of the suggestions was O.J. Simpson. And I believe, I really do believe to this day, that Motherless Stage Wars was the first comic take on the O.J. Simpson murders. Because the guys did a 10-minute recreation of the murders with Suko on color commentary and Cot gutting Nicole Simpson and Ron Brown and dashing out into his Bronco to escape. From the Chicago Reader. 
Caught a quick-witted young comedian who bears more than a passing resemblance to the Mel Cooley character on The Dick Van Dyke Show, and Suko, a conventionally handsome news anchor type, achieve an odd couple Laurel and Hardy-esque effect, clever off-the-cuff lines and some jarring surreal pantomime sequences. In spite of the above blurb, the critic hated the show and claimed in print that it wasn't even worth the $5 ticket price. Undeterred, I lowered the price to $4.99 and reposted, quoting the reader, including that it wasn't worth $5. Most of the comedy sports folks came to see it. We had strong audiences, regularly bringing in 40 to 60 folks a night. The former members of Level 6 all came as well. And after one such show, Jason Meyer came up and asked if we were going to do any more Level 6 stuff. I thought everybody was done with Level 6. I don't know about that. We were all done with Watusi, that's certain. What do you have in mind? Meyer got Alita and Bob and the four of us, it was Alita, Bob, Meyer, myself, four of us discussed what our next step was going to be. We held a meeting at the new seminary, which was the same diner where Joe, Jeff, and I had cast Level 6 in the first place and invited all the Level 6 members to come. Everyone showed up and we began brainstorming possible show ideas. It was apparent that we did not want to do any more improv or even sketch comedy. Alita struck gold when she suggested we do a parody of the 1940s radio. The more we talked about it, the more we liked it. Paul suggested that it be one hour before the end of the world, and the Armageddon Radio Hour was born. We decided that Meyer, Meyer would direct the show, and Alita would direct the character development, and our desire to be as authentic as possible, it was decided that each actor would have an off-air personality, and then read the radio scripts with that character's physicality and relationships underneath the scripted relationships, thus creating sort of a show-within-the-show quality. I decided that we needed some new blood, so I announced an open audition and asked the remaining Level 6 members, Hoover and Christie opted out of the radio project, to adjudicate. Given Myers and my association with comedy sports, plenty of folks from that group auditioned, and the additional members were Phil Ahrensberg, Patrick Carton, Katie Cawson, Karen McKee, all from comedy sports, and a young woman named Kate Hendrickson, who was not from comedy sports. She had a performance art background. The new folks fit like a glove. Joe came back to the group after he self-produced and directed a sketch show, excited to be writing in the 1940 style, which is a genre he proved to be amazingly adept at. Joe was downright prolific during Armageddon Radio Hour. Christy left the group entirely. We began writing. The decision was made that we would run for 10 weeks and gener generate an entirely new show each week. We booked the upstairs of the Body Politic Theater for a September-October run. Pat Carton was a talented graphic designer, and Karen McKee had her own public relations company. I made the decision to make the company a non-profit corporation and began the paperwork. Things started popping in ways none of us had expected. If the world is truly going to end, then Armageddon out of here with you. Come dear and let us swoon beneath the sackcloth moon. And whisper, nothing's like You just need to get your lipstick, let's all get apocalyptic No more need the messy of the war The Chinaman is now the boy next door We had no idea how far the Armageddon Radio Hour would take us and how long-lasting the show would be. We were merely having a ball creating something we all agreed would be a creative gas. We had 
the titles of some of the pieces, The Trials and Tribulations of Little Kate Crandall, Foster Child with the Spirited Disposition, The Shallow, The Great Santori, The King of Bedside Manor, Lynching in Love, The Intrigue of the Human Mind, Gwat, Medium Cigarettes, and Suerto Carpets, Vagisil, Grinkelman's Prosthetic Devices, The Man Bra, in addition to the reverbished level six, we brought in Jeff Shavar, one of the comedy sports musicians, to play keyboards for us on the Armageddon Radio Hour. The group wrote, wrote 10 weeks of commercials for fictional products, jingles, World War II PSAs, serials, and soap operas. It was an actual golden age for the small feisty company. For a period of nearly five months, nearly everyone got along and the creative output was extraordinary. Shavar proved to be an absolutely indispensable part of the show. His original jingle showed off a natural flair for creating funny lyrics and absolutely earwormingly catchy, catchy tunes. James was the freaking king of 1940s writing. Meyer proved to be the perfect director for the potential sprawl, and Phil was Walter Winchell. In creating the show within a show concept, each cast member with Alita's guiding hand developed a 1940s character complete with written bio that had a specific relationship with all the other cast members, essentially having the cast members playing cast members of a fictional radio show while performing the show. Well, because I was producing, and this was a much more ambitious project from the previous shows, I decided to take the one non-speaking role in the radio program, the Foley guy. It was a good fit. My background in music and composition afforded me a musical approach to sound effects of everything from doors closing to someone being slapped around to a car starting in the rain. I, I took the non-speaking role as a backseat kind of thing. However, in every single piece of printed criticism, I was singled out with adjectives like protean, spectacular, spectacular and laconic. It rubbed a few in the cast the wrong way. And McKee even accused me directly of somehow knowing it would get me the most individual notice. The 8 p.m. show, known as the Prime Time Show, was a transplant from the Café Voltaire, a huge musical hit entitled Schoolhouse Rock Live, and it featured the original cast. Consequently, the stage was painted with psychedelia, which no matter what justification we tried, we could not make work for a 1940s radio show, so... I bought 16 sheets of 8 foot by 4 foot masonite, painted them black, and would refloor the stage every night. The cry of masonite was the all call to the cast that it was time to get cracking, and it usually just came seconds after Schoolhouse Rock Live finished interjections. We'd cover the entire stage area in gloom, and I'd run through the house in my underwear, slapping my arms like I was a big ape or a giant running baby. There's no way to explain why I just did this before and after every one of the 20 shows. It was fun for me. We'd get in costume and begin smoking. It was the 1940s, so everyone smoked, and it was a big enough space uh, that five or six could smoke and not completely gas the place out. As Buddy Jones, my character, I smoked a cigar. I didn't smoke it during the show, but I'd smoke it about, about a quarter in and then chew it on the rest of the performance. One night, Shuley Cowan, the original Shuley from Schoolhouse Rock Live, came to me as a producer to complain about the smoking. Everything stinks when we get in here the next day. Oh, well, I'll stick around after and fumigate a bit more. I'll also get some Lysol spray down the seats if that helps. Well, yeah. It isn't the cigarettes so much. It's that fucker who smokes a cigar. That just kills the room. Oh. Oh, I'm the fucker. So... 
You're not going to quit smoking it? No. We decided, just like old-time radio, that it was, like I said, that it would be a completely new show every weekend, and the writing sessions were a blast. Everyone wrote for the show. Everyone sang in the show, whether they wanted to or not. And Suerto Carpets was inspired by a typo in the little Kate Crandall script where I meant to type answer to, and that became carpet weave from the hair of Picasso's mistresses. Phil came up with the band bra long before Seinfeld did, and the phrase that resounded throughout all of our collective consciousnesses was in reference to Glenn Dunbar's single malt scotch. Booze is good food! In one Walter Winchell news item, Chicago gangsters, inspired by the end of the world, went out to the streets throwing away money. One of the gangsters, Tony the Guat Zamboni, inspired the most enduring fictional product of them all, Guat. Guat was a wonder drug, bottled self-esteem. Some people got it, some do not. There should be no doubt about it that I got guat. I want you to hear it. Note, unfortunately, there are no recordings of the original cast doing this stuff, but back in early 2000, we made a promotional DVD for the show that I still had. The cast for the DVD was Patrick Brennan, Rebecca Languth, Jen Ellison, Dave Stinton, Jason Powers, Jim McCaffrey, Brendan Gardner, and of course, the only original cast member, Jeff Shavar. And now, a message from Dunbar, makers of new and improved Guat. Guat can make a difference in your life, even if you can't. Man, do I feel bad. People have been picking on me my whole life, but this has been a particularly bad week. People just don't seem to notice me. Say, Burgess, you have been looking a little out of sorts. I hate to see you so down in the dumps. Having a little problem with the opposite S-E-X? Yeah. I'm not. That's just it, Rock. You've got that certain something that women just go crazy for. Me? I got nothing. That's just it, chum. You think you got nothing and the whole world agrees with you. I used to think just like you, and then... Then what, Rockman? Then what? Guat, my feeble friend. I got guat. Next day at his job selling sandwiches from a push cart at the Federal Building, Burgess got a new outlook on life, and he got it from guat. Here's your usual, Sarah. Olive loaf on a Kaiser with mayo. Mayo? Mayo? Well, I'd like to tie you down that sandwich cart and spread mayonnaise all over you, Burgess. Golly gee, Sarah, I don't know I don't know why I never noticed it before. But you've got... You've got... You've got... Guat. I got guat. That's right, Burgess. You've got guat. And now all you men at home can get guat, too. While quantities last, new guat from Dunbar. Some do not. There should be no doubt about it that I got guat. Over the years, there's been on the spot guat, twilight guat, knee guat, midlife guat, gyna guat, guat samel, and guat tard. In 1998, WDP produced an open-run poetry slam open-mic variety show called Guatstock. For years, my email address was igotguat at aol.com. Guat is as much a part of WNEP and all who have been involved in it as almost anything else. 
Now, creating new sound effects for the show was always a challenge, and I always tried, but didn't always succeed. I figured there were about three ways to do a sound effect for Armageddon Radio Hour. Make it sound exactly the way it was supposed to, make it look exactly the way it was supposed to, or combine the look and the sound. The first exemplified my onstage footsteps. Blocks of wood, walked on surfaces, sound more accurate than actual shoes, or even be walking in place on a surface. The second is the miniature door that Pat Carton built for me. It doesn't really sound like a door opening and closing, but it looks like a door, so the audience fills in the blanks. And the last is represented by my lifting my shirt and slapping my belly for a fight sound effect. It looks and sounds accurate and is pretty fucking funny to look at. All the above being true doesn't rule out the screwing up in spite of some of the best laid plans. One piece during the run required a gun to be shot six times. One shot, a pause, then five more. I could make an effective sound, sounding gunshot with two hunks of wood, but I, I thought that actually having a gun would, for the audience that they could see was the ticket. Alita claimed that she had exactly what I was looking for. It was, a, it was powered by a CO2 cartridge, and it was pretty big as well. So this is a big-ass gun with CO2 cartridge in it. She arrived at the theater late, which was not atypical of Alita, and dumped the gun down on my sound effects table. I had no time to play with it ahead of the show, so went into assume mode and hoped for the best. About three quarters of the show, it's time to use the gun. None of us knows how loud this thing's going to be. So as Joe delivers his line just preceding the gunshot, those of us on microphone get this look on our faces as if someone was going to blow up a balloon in our faces. It's about to pop any second. It was a CO2 gun. There was no discharge, just a sharp burst of air. The entire cast stopped what they were doing and slowly looked at me. I, in character, shrugged my shoulders. Paul starts getting the giggles, which starts to slowly spread. Oh, says Joe dryly, I've been stapled. As I staple him five more times, Paul laughs harder with each one and the audience goes into hysterics. And that was a cast that loved to play jokes on one another during the show. The Harvey Corman effect of breaking someone up in uncontrolled laughter during the show was a common goal. Phil would write new news bits with the sole agenda being to crack me up on stage. Meyer did the same thing throughout the run, trying to just about anything to get me to break. Due to the fact that we all wrote the material and we were almost all comedic improvisers, the changing of lines to get your scene partner to laugh out loud of context was the coin of the realm. Well, Jason had built in a moment for every character to improvise on-air farewells. I'm pretty sure he did this so he could fuck with me. His farewell was usually a goodbye to all the folks in Iowa and a declaration of love for the Molly Fuller character, who was played by Kate Hendrickson. One night, he got up with an Indian headdress and blanket and claimed his American Indian status. To fully demonstrate his love for Molly, he had decided to do an ancient Cherokee love dance. Now keep in mind, this was all supposed to be on the radio. So Meyer does this little gibberish chanting, circles around her, and ends up on his knees, and ends the piece by shouting, I'm a gonna do ya! Almost everybody in the cast broke. And the funny thing is, Meyer actually married Kate Hendrickson, the actor playing the Molly character, a few years later, and they have a whole gaggle of kids now. The end of the show begins with Buddy Jones' moment. He doesn't speak and decides to write a note for Eddie, Jason, to pass along. 
The no was supposed to indicate that, yes, the world was really coming to a fire end and that we should commit mass suicide together. I told you it was dark. Eddie reads the note and passes it to Paul, and the note is then slowly read by every cast member. But he gets up, gets a tray of red Kool-Aid in cups, distributes the cups, everyone drinks, and leaves to go die. The show ends with Buddy sweeping up, dusting off the WNEP sign, and shutting the on-air light off. Then, as the audience leaves, they each receive their own glass of Kool-Aid upon splitting. On closing night, I challenged the cast to all run through the theater in their underwear after the show once the audience is gone, because I've done it every fucking show. And if they do, then I would in turn run down Lincoln Avenue in my underwear. Everyone agrees. So that night, I wrote something really gross on my note about balls and shitting or something. I'm not really sure what. And as Meyer read it, the morphing of his face to control the laughter was quite something to behold, like a I don't, know, I don't know how to describe it. It's just like his face kind of became rubber. Paul didn't even look at it. Instead, started to laugh at Meyer's reaction and pass it on. One by one, every cast member is giggling. We drink our Kool-Aid and end the show. After the audience had gone, the entire cast stripped down to bare essentials, and they came running out like nearly nude children through the space, screaming and laughing like loons. So I pulled everything off, and I ran outside, barefoot in a pair of boxer shorts, in the middle of a crowded late Saturday night Lincoln Avenue. I almost got arrested and I almost got beaten by some drunken frag guys, but I made it to Fullerton and back in one piece. The best part? I was videotaping the show, and at that point had a videotape of the cast running through the theater in their skivvies. (laughs) I'd been thinking about the production, of which, in spite of decent reviews and good audiences, I still lost about $800 on it, and realized that I wanted to take it to a festival somewhere. Alita mentioned the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, the largest theater festival in the world. At the end of our closing night cleanup, I announced that we were taking Armageddon Radio Hour to Scotland in nine months. At the time, I don't think anyone believed me. Armageddon Radio Hour played an important role for the company, as you can tell. One strange element was the company's nonprofit handle. If you recall, WNP originally was What Now Entertainment Productions. When I applied for nonprofit status, I was denied three times without explanation. I finally drove to Springfield, Illinois, and confronted a hapless desk jockey. It was explained that they had determined the name to be too commercial, and in a fit of peeve, I responded, Well, how does WNEP Theater Foundation sound? And that's how we got stuck with the least interesting theater name ever but a perfect name for a fictional radio station, WNEP. Man, I'll tell you, going through these mo- these memories is really fun. It's a lot of fun. I'd forgotten how incredible everybody involved were and how proud I am that we jumped in without hesitation to create art that no one else was doing. Going through the CDs and DVDs to find stuff has been pretty gratifying. I hope you're enjoying the stories as much as I am. That's it for this week. Next week, we go back to Tattoo Stories, and then in two weeks, we join the cast of the Armageddon Radio Hour as we head to Scotland. I hope you join me.
Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiar journeys. Thank you.